Morning. Morning. Let me ask you guys a question by a show of hands. How many of you guys ever struggle to trust? Raise your hand. You ever struggle, struggle to trust? You know, this is especially true for us who live in Colorado when it comes to our weather forecasters. <laughs> I have shoveled partly cloudy off my driveway many times. Any of you guys with me? People often ask this question or wonder, is there anything that we can really trust? I mean, is there anyone or anything that we can trust? And is there any such thing as absolute truth? One study showed that 67% of Americans say there's no such thing as absolute truth. And postmodernists have been telling us this for 30 years. They say things like everything is relative. Uh, there is no such thing as absolute truth. Uh, USA did an article, and they entitled it, The Day America Told the Truth, and they did a survey, and they found out that 91% of Americans routinely lie. So it's no wonder we can't trust anyone, because we're all liars, right? We don't seem to tell the truth. I, I heard a story about a lady who was weighing herself one morning, and she got up on her scale, and she looked down, and she said, this scale must be lying. I can't weigh that much. And her little daughter said, but mommy, you look like you weigh that much. <laughs> Ouch. We don't like to face the truth, do we? But I want us to ask this question. Is there any such thing as absolute truth? And let me expand it a little further. Because Christians for a long time have believed that the Bible we have is absolute truth. And so what I really want to answer today is can we really trust the Bible? Can we trust this book as absolute truth? I want you to turn your Bibles, your mobile devices to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter 1, 16. We're continuing our summer series called Greatest Hits. We're bringing back some of the, the messages that were favorites here over the last eight years at Orchard Church. I can tell you that most of you have not heard this message because I did it uh, back in, I think it was 2008, about six years ago, and there was only about 100 of us in the church at that time. So this is going to be a fresh new message for many of you guys today, but it's one of my favorites, and I think it's foundational for Orchard Church, answering this question, can we really trust the Bible? Now, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter is going to talk about the fact how he had been with Jesus. He was one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of Jesus' followers. He saw Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. I mean, he had proof of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ because he spent three and a half years with him. Not only that, but Peter was one of the three disciples that got to be on the mountain one day, the Mount of Transfiguration, when they heard the audible voice of God. Now, would it have been awesome to spend time with Jesus hear the audible voice of God. I mean, that would build your faith, wouldn't it? That's some pretty strong evidence of God. But Peter's gonna make the point, even though he had been with Jesus and he'd heard the audible voice of God, today we have something that is even more sure than those two things. That's powerful. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He said, you know, we're not making this stuff up. We saw Jesus. We were with Jesus. This isn't just some fable or story. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory... This is when they heard God's audible voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. That's a very strong statement that Peter makes here. We have the prophetic, he says, we now have the prophetic word 
confirmed. I love how the old King James says it. It says we have a more sure word of prophecy. More sure than Jesus himself and God's audible voice. What is this prophetic word confirmed? What is he talking about that we have? He says, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now look at verse 20. He's going to tell us what this more sure prophetic word that we have today. What is it? Knowing this first that no prophecy of the, what's the next word, church? Scripture, the Bible The word of God is of any private interpretation. In other words, people didn't just make this stuff up and put it in a book. For prophecy, the word of God, scripture, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by who? The Holy Spirit of God. And so Peter makes this case that what we have today in our hands, the completed word of God, is trustworthy. It's reliable. We have something that the disciples didn't even have in the Old Testament people. We have the completed word of God. The whole thing from Genesis to Revelation. And let me tell you some verses. Let me share some verses with you that what the Bible claims about itself when it comes to answering this question, can we really trust the Bible? Is there any such thing as absolute truth? Psalm 33, 4, the psalmist says, for the word of the Lord is right and all his work is done in what, church? Truth. Everybody say truth. It's done in truth. Psalm 119, 160 says, the entirety of your word is truth. Notice it says the entirety, not part of it, not some of it. There are even some churches today that will say, we believe that this book contains truth. We believe that this book has truth. Listen, at Orchard Church, we don't believe that this book just contains truth and has truth. We believe it is truth. The entirety of it is true. John 17, 17, Jesus, will you take his word for it? Jesus says this, sanctify them through your truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. And this church, Orchard Church, eight years ago was founded on that fact that we have a book that is absolute truth that we can trust. This is why I tell you guys all the time, I always want you guys to ask this question in any circumstance, in any decision, in any question that's asked of you, that you should ask this question. What does, help me church, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does truth say? What does God's word say? People will ask me, you know, on controversial subjects, well, what does the Orchard Church believe about this subject or that subject? And I always tell them, it doesn't matter what the Orchard Church believes. It only matters what God's word says. Because that's our final authority. It is absolute truth. And if it can be proven that the Bible is true and that it comes to us from God, The issue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is settled, which proved Jesus was who he claimed to be because the Bible says he rose from the dead. The issue of salvation and eternal life is settled because this book teaches about that. And every issue in life is settled if this is absolute truth. So you're ready to hear today how we can really trust the Bible. Are you guys ready for this? Okay, I I know I speak at 70 miles an hour with gusts up to 100 at times. And this is going to be one of those days, but I just want you to to soak it up, take it in. You know, you can get the points, but don't worry too much about the notes. You can go back online and get the details. But I want to give you three reasons why I believe we can trust the Bible as absolute truth. So here we go. The first one is this. Number one, we can trust the Bible because of the Bible's unexplainable unity. The way this book is put together is evidence in itself that it could not be the work of man. 
If you want to memorize one verse about the authority of Scripture, memorize 2 Timothy 3.16. It simply says this, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Not some Scripture, not most Scripture. All, everybody say all. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. What does that mean? The word inspiration comes from two Greek words, pneumotheos, God breathed. It means that God was doing the speaking. He used humans as instruments to write it down and pen the scriptures. We'll talk about that. But God was doing the talking. They were his words coming through the instrument of man that, that wrote it down. It's, it's kind of like, you know, uh, Siri. Any of you guys have Siri? I love when Siri, you know, on my iPhone works. I hate when she tells me I'm not working today. It just, just really frustrates me. And I can actually take out Siri, you know, driving down the road, you know, you're not supposed to be texting, and so I can say, Siri, send this text to Shelly, you know, hey, I'll be home for dinner in a few minutes. When she gets that text, she's, it comes from Siri, but whose words are they? They're my words. And that's how we got the Bible. You know, it's like a, a boss bringing in a secretary and saying, hey, I want you to write this letter and put these words down. And she's the instrument but the boss is doing the dictating. And that's how we got the word of God. Holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. So both in its content and construction is proof that this is a supernatural book. Let me give you some evidence to consider that some of you may know, some of you may not know about the Bible. The word Bible means books. It means collection of books. And the Bible is actually 66 individual books coming together, making the one book called the Bible. There's over 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 31,171 verses. And what's amazing is from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Revelation, this reads as one continuous story. And it fits together with a unity that is totally unexplainable humanly. When you understand that the Bible, a lot of people don't realize this, the Bible was written over a 1,500-year period of time. It wasn't written by one person or a few people in one year or five years or 10 years or 100. 1,500 years it took to write the entire Bible. It took 60 generations. There were over 40 authors that put together the Bible that was written. And these authors came from all different walks of life with different opinions and backgrounds. It was written by kings, queens, poor, rich, farmers, doctors, tent makers, carpenters, housewives, tax collectors, historians, princes, soldiers, fishermen, prophets, male, female. It was written in many different places in three different continents, different cultures that affect the writing. It was written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. It was written during different time periods. Sometimes it was written during times of peace. Sometimes it was written during times of war, which certainly affect the writing of the day. And if that wasn't enough to explain, try to explain the unexplainable way we got our Bible, it's, it writes about hundreds of controversial subjects, subjects like creation, life, Death, eternity, morality, parenting, marriage, money, love, sexuality, politics. And yet the Bible is 100% in agreement about these subjects. Let me, let me illustrate it this way, how this is an unexplainable, the unity of the Bible is unexplainable humanly. Can you imagine if I gave you guys a homework assignment to all three of our services at Orchard Church today and I said, we've decided we're going to write a book. And so here's what we're going to do. I mean, we all have a lot in common. We live during the same time period. Most of us live in the same area. We live in Colorado. I want you to go home, and I want you to all write a one-page article about these subjects. Morality, love, death, marriage, and parenting. And let's go ahead and throw finance in there as well. 
You bring those one-page articles back. Next week, we're just going to cram them into a book. And on the front cover, we're going to put this. What the Orchard Church Believes. Yeah, you laugh. That would be one of the most confusing, self-conflicting, ridiculous books you could ever read. But yet when it comes to the Bible, you have a book written over 1,500 years, 60 different generations, 40 authors, three continents, three languages, different times, places, and walks alive, hundreds of controversial subjects set from the beginning to the end. It reads as one unfolding story, and it never contradicts itself one time. That's humanly unexplainable. It's supernatural, it's unparalleled, it's unequaled. There is no book like this book. That's a good place for an amen or two, right there, just a little hit, there you go, there you go. This book, so can we, you can clap too, if you don't like saying them, you can clap, it's either, either works, you can do them both. So can we really trust the Bible? Reason number one, the Bible's unexplainable unity proves it to be true, reliable, and trustworthy. Let me give you another reason. Not only the unexplainable unity, but the Bible's uncoincidental prophecies. And I had to work really hard to say uncoincidental. The Bible's uncoincidental prophecies. This book has the ability to predict the future with 100% accuracy. You all know what a prophecy is, right? A prophecy is where God predicts something, and then hundreds, thousands of years later, it comes true, exactly like the Bible said. And here's what's amazing. In 6,000 years of human history, the Bible has never been wrong on any of its prophecies and predictions. And no other book has even attempted to claim and fulfill the prophecies that you find in the Bible. And there's not just a few prophecies in the Bible. There's over 10,365 prophecies in this book. Other books have made a few general predictions. They seldom, if ever, come true. How many of you guys remember the Y2K scare? Remember that, year 2000? And they all these predictions... I was so excited that night to just see, like, is the world going to end? And nothing happened. I was kind of bummed. I was like, man, all this stuff was supposed to happen and nothing happened. And yet the Bible has made and fulfilled hundreds and thousands of prophecies, hundreds and thousands of years before they came true. You know why? Because God is the God of prophecy. He's the author. He knows the beginning from the end. He can be trusted. And nobody can predict the future like God. Now, why does God give us so many prophecies, 10,365 prophecies? Well, he gives us a hint as to why he puts so many prophecies in the Bible. Because he knows we're not easy and quick to trust people or anything. And so listen to what he says in Isaiah 48.3. This is interesting. God says, long ago I told you what was going to happen. Then suddenly I took action and all my predictions came true. Now, why did you do that, God? Well, let me tell you. For I know how stubborn and obstinate you are. Your necks are as unbending as iron and your heads are as hard as bronze. God's words, not mine. But did he nail us or what? My dad, growing up, evidently knew this verse because he would tell me all the time, Doug, you are so hard-headed. He got that from the Bible. I I just realized that recently. Uh, My father passed away about 14 years ago, but he has passed the baton on to my wife and she likes to let me know that sometimes and so it's good at that. God says, you're hard-headed. We don't always believe. We're not easy to trust. So he said, I put prophecies to prove my book is true, and I'm true, and you could trust me. Verse 5, he says, that is why I told you what would happen. I told you beforehand what I was going to do. God's saying, I know you're not easily convinced, and I'm going to use prophecy to take away all of your excuses about who I am and my book, that the Bible is true. So let me share 
a few prophecies, some uncoincidental prophecies that I believe prove the Bible is true and it can be trusted. I'm not going to share all 10,365 today. Another good place for an amen, okay? All right, but I'm going to, thank you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, amen on that one. But I'm going to give you three. Let me give you three uncoincidental prophecies. You're going to enjoy this. The first one is the prophecies in the Bible concerning the nation of Israel. There's some amazing prophecies about the nation of Israel. Have you ever noticed how Israel, that little bitty tiny nation in the Middle East about the size of New Jersey, is a dominating theme of the news all the time? What, what's up with that country? I mean, USA, you know, today, CNN, ABC, CBS, they're always talking about Israel. Why is it such a dominant theme in the news? I'll tell you why, because it's a dominant theme in the Bible, God's people, the nation of Israel. Uh, scholars say this, that Israel is the great sign God has given to the world to prove his existence and to prove the Bible is true and prove that God is in charge of history. And what's amazing is that in the last 60 years of Israel's history, we've seen some amazing prophecies be fulfilled right before our very eyes. Some of you have seen them firsthand. Many of us have heard about them. You know, the Bible has a lot of prophecy and predictions about the last days and the second coming of Christ. We believe the next uh, prophetic event on God's time calendar, according to the Bible, is the rapture of the church. It could happen at any moment, any time. But the Bible says there's a lot of things that are going to lead up to that that had to do with the nation of Israel. We know that once the rapture of the church takes place and we're gone, all attention is on Israel. There's going to be the Antichrist that signs a seven-year priest treaty with the nation of Israel. The temple is going to be rebuilt. They're going to allow worship to take place. The desecration of the temple is going to happen at the middle part of the tribulation. And it all has to do with this nation of Israel. But that means Israel has to be a nation. And I want you to understand the world is set like this stage for this event to take place. But it hasn't always been that way. It hasn't always been that way. For 1900 years, Israel was not a nation. They were not in their homeland. They had been driven from their homeland. And many scholars, when they would read about the last days and what was going to happen in the nation of Israel, they thought they're never going to have their homeland again. They're never going to be a nation again. So even biblical scholars started thinking, maybe we've misunderstood the Bible. Maybe it's not a literal thing. It's a spiritual thing. Because Israel wasn't even a nation. They had been scattered around the world because God said in Deuteronomy 28 uh, verse 64 and many other verses that God would punish Israel for their disobedience and he would scatter them out of their homeland around other parts of the world and that's exactly what God did. God said though he would scatter them but God never said he would make them extinct and there's a difference. In Jeremiah 30, verse 11, God said this, For I am with you and I will save you, talking to his people, the nation of Israel, says the Lord. I will completely destroy the nations where I have scattered you, but I will not completely destroy you. And you can look back in history, the history of the world, and no other nation has lost their homeland like Israel, yet retained their identity. And they didn't just retain their identity for a few years or a few hundred years. They retained their identity for 1,900 years, even though they were part of all the other nations of the world. In 70 AD, Israel lost their homeland to Rome and they were conquered. Yet they kept their identity. Even historians, some that don't even believe the Bible and believe in God, say that's humanly impossible. There's something supernatural about the nation of Israel. But God predicted it. And in Ezekiel 37, 21, God said, I will gather the people in the last days. I will gather the people of Israel from among the nations where they'd been scattered. 
I will bring them home to their own land from the places where they have been scattered. I will unify them into one nation on the mountain of Israel. And we went 1,900 years and they had no homeland and they were not a nation until May 14th, 1948. And some of you remember that day. We'll not ask you to raise your hand. Israel was awarded their homeland again and they became a nation once again, just exactly like God said what happened in the Bible. Does that give anybody goosebumps besides me? And since that date, 8 million Jews have returned to Israel since 1948 and they continue to go back by the thousands every year. 70 years ago, this prophecy seemed impossible. But God said in the last days, it's gonna happen and it did. I believe the prophecies concerning Israel are uncoincidental evidence that this book is true and we can trust it. Let me give you another prophecy, an uncoincidental prophecy, the prophecies concerning Jesus, the Messiah himself. There are over 360 prophecies concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament, written hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus was ever born. And yet there were, there were predictions about his birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and some people say, well, Jesus knew the Bible, and so he showed up on the scene, and he just started living out these prophecies. Well, that makes a little bit of sense, except for the fact that it prophesied when he was going to be born, where he was going to be born, the family he was going to be born. I mean, that's a pretty good trick to pick all that before you're born. And then when he's hanging on the cross, and he draws his last breath, he gives up his spirit. Now he's dead. And he's continuing to fulfill prophecy about himself, and he's not even alive. Because in John 19, 36, it says, these things happen in fulfillment of what? The scriptures that they said, not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on the one they pierced. And it's not like Jesus at this point is telling the Roman soldiers, okay, make sure you pierce my side when I'm dead, you know, and make sure you, know, you hang me out. No, they were doing all this. It was all fulfilling prophecy because God is in charge of history. And it was written hundreds of years before it happened. And every one of the prophecies concerning the Messiah were fulfilled to the absolute letter just like the Bible said it would. Just like they said it would. Some people say, well, maybe that's just a coincidence that Jesus fulfilled these 360 prophecies. So numerologists, using the principle of probability, said, let's just take eight of the 360 prophecies. Let's just take eight of them. What are the chances of one man coming on the scene and fulfilling even eight of the messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Now remember, he fulfilled 360, but let's just take eight to make it simple. And they said the chances of one man fulfilling even eight of the 360 prophecies of the Messiah is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros after it. I have no idea what that number is. So to help us out, because I'm not real good at math either, they, they put it into an illustration. They said it would be like this. The chances are, are this, that if you took quarters and you stacked them one foot deep over the in, entire state of Texas and you painted one of them with a red dot and you took a man and you blindfolded him, you went in and you mixed up all the quarters and he's got one chance to walk in blindfolded into the state of Texas and pick up the quarter with the red dot, that's the chances of one man fulfilling even eight of the prophecies of the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled 360 of them. Either the Bible is true, or Jesus was the luckiest man to ever live. And I think we know the answer. I think we know the answer. 
Let me give you one more. This is a fun one. The uncoincidental prophecies concerning the last days. And again, when we're talking about the last days, we're talking about the last days before Jesus Christ returns at the rapture and the second coming. God gave Daniel an incredible prophecy. The, the book of Daniel parallels the book of Revelation about the last days. And, and God said this, but you, Daniel, keep this prophecy a secret. Seal up the book until the time of the end, the end of time before Jesus returns, when many will rush here and there in the last days, and knowledge will increase. M- most Bible scholars believe that when Daniel said In the last days, people will rush here and there. That means there would be a vast increase in the speed and frequency of how we travel. In 1680, let me say that again. In 1680, a man named Sir Isaac Newton, remember him in school? He was a Christian. He read this prophecy in Daniel, and this is what he said, and I quote, Personally, I cannot believe that these words refer to the end times. 1680. Men will travel from country to country in an unprecedented manner. There may be some inventions that will enable people to travel much more frequently and quickly than they do now. That speed might even exceed 40 miles per hour. Now you laugh at that, but listen to this. 80 years later, from 1680, 80 years later, A French atheist, some of you studied in school, named Voltaire, read what Sir Isaac Newton had said. And here's how he responded. See what a fool Christianity makes of an otherwise brilliant man. Here is a scientist like Newton who actually writes that man may travel at speeds up to 30 or 40 miles per hour based on a Bible verse in Daniel. Has he forgotten if man travels at this rate of speed, he would suffocate and his heart would stand still. I'd like to pray for you guys right now as you travel home today that you do not go over 40 miles per hour. But God, there you go. God predicted this. But Daniel also said something else, another prophecy about the last days. He said knowledge would increase. He said knowledge would increase. I don't have to tell you guys, what do they call this age we live in? We live in the information age. It has been said that 80% of the world's total knowledge has been brought forth in the last decade. 80%. And the Bible said this would happen. In the last days, we know the explosion of the information on the internet and the access to this information. In December 1995, there were 16 million users worldwide on the internet. Five years later, in 2000, there was 361 million users. Today, in 2014, there are over 2 billion people in the world using all the information on the internet. Internet traffic doubles every three months. There there was one internet site in December 1990, thanks to Al Gore, and, sorry, today there are 232 million sites, and there are 11,000 added every day, and now we have instant access to all this information in our back pocket, right here, every one of us, and what's bizarre is that the Bible said this would happen. And what's even crazier is with all this information today, people are still asking the same question that Pontius Pilate asked of Jesus in his day. What is truth? 
What is truth? People are still looking for truth. I praise God, I believe we have it. And you can look around and see the uncoincidental prophecies of the Bible being fulfilled before our very eyes, again proving the Bible is true and it can be trusted. Can we really trust the Bible? We can trust the Bible because of the unexplainable unity, the uncoincidental prophecies, and then let me give you the third one. I believe we can trust the Bible because of the Bible's unimaginable teachings. What is taught in the Bible. When you read the teachings of the Bible, it proves that God had to have been the author and writer of this book. Some have said it this way. Man could not write the Bible if he would, and man would not write the Bible if he could. I'll say that again. Man could not write the Bible if he would, and man would not write the Bible if he could. Let me give you some teachings of the Bible to illustrate that. First of all, take the teachings about God in the Bible. There are some things that people uh, take for granted about God because we've heard them all of our life, and we get used to them. And most people have heard these things about God, that God, our God is infinite. Uh, he's boundless. He's unlimited. He's endless. He's eternal. We hear about a God in the Bible who's omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing, beginning from the end. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He can be everywhere at the same time. We believe that our God is three in one, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And most Americans have heard these things about God, but we tend to take them for granted. But when you take all the attributes and all the characteristics of God spoken about in the Bible, it absolutely transcends man's finite intellect. It blows our minds. Would you agree? Because even the things we read about God in here, we don't fully understand. We just accept them by faith. One day when we're in heaven, we will, but right now, it's just mind-blowing. And there's no way such a finite being like man could invent such an infinite God that we read about in the Bible. Only God could have dictated this to man about himself. One example we have of this, and we know that this is from God, is you compare the God of the Bible, Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you compare that God to the other man-made gods and false gods, and there's no comparison. There's no comparison to his awesomeness, to his power, to his majesty, to his splendor, to his character, to his infiniteness. There's no comparison. That's why he deserves our honor, glory, and worship. Would you agree, church? Because there's no God like our God that we read about and taught about and understand and embrace and love and follow and serve the God of the Bible. Man could not have made this kind of person up. We don't think that way. I I like the way the psalmist tried tried to attempt to describe God, and he kind of gives up, he says this, O Lord my God, you have performed many wonders for us. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. You have no equal. If I even tried to recite all your wonderful deeds, I would never come to the end of them. The teaching of God alone proves that man did not and could not have written the Bible, the God of the Bible. It's beyond our comprehension. And he deserves our worship, our glory, our honor, our praise, our lives, our service. Wouldn't you agree? Let me give you another one, another unimaginable teaching. Not only do the teachings about God prove that God wrote this book, I believe the teachings about man himself prove that God was the author of the Bible. If you read what this book teaches about man, no man would have written those things about himself. 
Because the Bible teaches that man is sinful, that man is corrupt, that man is depraved, that man without God is hopeless and helpless. Would man really say those things about himself? No. That language goes against our human nature. You see, we want to feel good about ourselves, don't we? You know, we want to believe I'm okay, you're okay, we're all going to be okay. The marketing world understands this. Commercials play to the natural nature of man. That's why they try to sell you, you know, like $50 shampoo and tell you things like, you're worth it. You know, that's why I try to sell you hamburgers and they say things like, you deserve a break today. Have it your way. You're the man. And God's word says, no, you're not. (laughs) You see, you're a vile, corrupt, depraved, wicked person who really needs our product doesn't seem to sell things. (laughs) It just doesn't. And if man is going to set some standards for himself, like those that you find in the Bible, he's at least going to make them attainable. And yet that's not what you read about in the Bible. What you read is it's unattainable apart from faith in Jesus Christ. It's unattainable. It's not what you find in the Bible. But Paul said it this way in Romans 7, 18. Paul said, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Maybe a little bit? No, nothing. Paul said in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? You think about the heroes of the faith in the Bible. You know, men like Noah and Moses and Abraham and Isaac and David. I mean, these men did incredible things for God that are recorded for us in the Bible. But let me also remind you that this book includes the horrible things that some of them did. And what's even more amazing is they wrote them down themselves. They were the writers of their book. And they they had to say some of the horrible things they did. You know why? Because God was doing the dictating. God was doing the talking. We just got done uh, studying the book of Jonah for four weeks here at Orchard Church. Most believe that the writer of the book of Jonah was Jonah. Jonah made some big mistakes. Jonah was running from God, and then when God gave him a second chance, he had a horrible, sneaky attitude. If I was Jonah, I would have left that out of my story. David, look at all the Psalms and everything that he wrote. There's some things that David did. I would have left out of my story. You know why those men didn't leave those things out? Because God was doing the talking. God was telling them, this is what you put down. It's my words, not yours. They didn't write it down. Man could not write the things concerning the teachings of God, and man would not write the things concerning the teachings of man. And this last teaching really nails it, proving that this book is supernatural and comes to us from God. It's true, it's reliable, and it can be trusted. And it's the unimaginable teachings about salvation. The teachings about salvation. What the Bible teaches about salvation is absolute proof that man did not write this book. Because natural man's idea of salvation, eternal life, the afterlife, always is the same. Works. 
Something that we have to do to gain some favor. Some human effort, some standard, some ritual, some sacrifice, some level of spirituality that I obtain so that I can somehow earn eternal life. 98% of all the religions of the world teach some form of works to have eternal life. Yet the Bible says something completely opposite of that. I tell people all the time, there's really only two belief systems in the world when it comes to eternal life. There's really only two. You can name them whatever you want, but there's really only two. You're saved by something you do or you're saved by something Jesus did for you. It's that simple. And you can look at every man-made religion in the world and salvation always comes down to something that you do. But in the Bible, salvation is based not on human efforts and works, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ. The definitive passage on this is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I quote it all the time here at Orchard Church. For by grace you have been saved through, what church? Faith, and that not of yourselves. You cannot do this. It is the gift of God, let's all say it together, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Because you know that if we could work our way to heaven, we would all spend all eternity bragging about how we got there. And it would not be about God, it would be about us. But it's going to be all about God because without him, none of us would be there. And that's what the Bible teaches. But that's not, if man was writing this book, that's not what we would have come up with because man doesn't think like that. Our question is always, what do I have to do? What do I got to do? What do I got to do? What do I have to do? When I'm sharing my faith with people and I'm talking to someone and I'm not sure if they're a believer or not, I'm not sure if they've really got it or not, I always ask the same question. This is the key question I always ask. You might want to write this down. I asked them this question. If you were standing at the gates of heaven right now and God said, why should I let you in? What would you say? If they're, if they're not a believer, it's always something like this. Well, I've tried to be really good. I hope my good outweighs my bad. I pray. I read the Bible. I've been baptized. I go to church. And they start listing all of their works. And the only question that is the key that will unlock the gate is, I don't deserve to get into heaven. I'm only getting in because of what Jesus did for me. And I've put my faith and trust in him. The Bible's way of salvation is not based on human works, but the finished work of Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again, and we put our faith and trust in him. The teaching of salvation, again, proves that man could not, would not have written this book in that way. The Bible talks about having the faith of a little child. That's all it takes. Just believing what God has said. The faith of a little child. You've heard the statement, out of the mouth of babes. Um, our son Caleb, he's 18, almost 19 now. When he was about five or six years old, we, we had a discussion about something. And what he said in this discussion sums up everything that we've just talked about. But he summed it up as a five, six-year-old little boy. And we were having this discussion about what in life is real and what is make-believe. And, you know, as parents, we, you know, we had fun with some make-believe things and characters, Mickey Mouse and things like that. But we wanted to make sure that he knew that Jesus was real. And we were like, how do we make sure that he understands the difference? So he was being quizzed one day. And we said, Caleb, is the Easter bunny real? And he said, no. It's just for fun. We said, okay. 
We said, uh, Caleb, is the tooth fairy real? No, no, that, that's just for fun. We said, Caleb, is Santa Claus real? Thought for a second. He said, no, no, it's just for fun. And we said, well, Caleb, is Jesus real? And he said, yes, yes, he's real. And we said, well, how do you know Jesus is real? And he said, it's in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, it's true. I can't add anything to that. <laughs> Let's pray. Your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment. Can we really trust the Bible? I believe yes. Because of the unexplainable unity, the uncoincidental prophecies, and the unimaginable teachings. We should always ask the question, what does the Bible say? So what do we do with this practically now? What are the implications for our life today? How do we apply this? Well, first of all, there may be some of you in this room this morning, and you have one of two types of responses to this. Some of you maybe say, you know, that didn't prove anything to me. That was foolish. That was a waste of time. And you might go out of here the same way you came in. But there also may be some of you here this morning, you say, God has done something in your heart today. You know, Jesus said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And God wants to set some of you free this morning. And truth is not only in God's word, but truth is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And he's revealed himself to you. And he offers you eternal life. He offers you an abundant life. And if the Bible is true, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. And there are many of you in this room, you've made that decision to put your faith and trust in Jesus. You, you came to that point in your life that you recognized, I cannot save myself. There's nothing I can do. But Jesus did it for me, and I'm accepting him. But there may be some of you here today, and you've never made that decision. To put your faith in Jesus. And the Bible says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And I want to give you an opportunity to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now. I want to lead you in a prayer of faith that you can pray from your heart to God's right now. It's not a magic prayer. They're not magic words. That's not what saves you. It's your faith. Prayer is simply a way to express what is in your heart to God. So if you're ready to invite Jesus into your life today, would you pray this prayer of faith with me if he's spoken to you in that way? Jesus, I believe in your word. I believe what it says about you. I believe you died on the cross for me, for my sins, so I could have eternal life. I know there's nothing I can do except put my faith in you. Jesus, I put my faith in you today. I accept you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus for forgiving me, loving me, and saving me. Thank you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but if you just prayed that prayer of faith for the first time, I, I want to pray for you personally. You just began a journey with Jesus that I want to pray for you that you would grow in that journey and walk from this day forward. Would you just, with heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around but me for just a moment, would you slip up your hand and say, yes, I prayed that prayer of faith. God bless you, young man. Thank you. God bless you young person thank you anyone else yes God bless you ma'am thank you just slip it up high so I can see it for just a moment thank you several hands God bless you thank you several people anyone else I prayed that prayer of faith I meant it let me pray for you Father I pray for all those that have put their faith and trust in you today God 
I pray their lives would never be the same. I pray that they would grow in their relationship with you as they get into your word and you speak to them. Lord, as they pray and they talk to you, I pray that we might, as a church, be able to take them by the spiritual hand and disciple them in your word to help them grow, that they would know they're not alone in this faith journey. And we thank you for their decision. We celebrate in that decision today. Thank you, Lord. Well, that's about nice close. Maybe you're here today. I know we have a lot of believers here this morning. How do we apply this to our life? I hope for one thing that, that this message has strengthened your faith and solidified your faith in the word of God that we so often take for granted this unparalleled, unmatched word that's supernatural that has been preserved for us and withstood the test of time. And if it is true, and it can be trusted, it's the only absolute truth that exists on this earth, which I believe it is, are you reading it? Not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. Are you studying it? Are you memorizing it? And most of all, are you applying it to your life? James said that we're to be doers of the word and not just hearers. Are you obeying it? Are you discipling others in God's word? That's how we disciple others. We take them by the spiritual hand and we help them to grow in the word of God. Are you doing the things this book says? And with heads bowed and eyes closed, listen, as believers all across this auditorium this morning, how many of you would be honest enough to admit, I could do more with the Word of God. I could, I could read it more. I could study it more. I could apply it more. God has spoken to me. Can I pray for you? Would you slip up your hand all across the auditorium, hands in every section, and mine's up with you. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, that we would have a greater appreciation of the supernatural book that you've left us. Our faith comes from your word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I pray, Lord, that we would read it, we would study it, we would memorize it, we would apply it, we would disciple others in it. That we'd always ask the question, what does the Bible say? Thank you, God, that you didn't leave us down here in these lives to just wing it and do the best we can, but you've given us an instruction manual. Not only have you given us an instruction manual, but, Lord, you have given us a love letter. This is how you speak to us, speak into our lives. May we open it, may we apply it, may we live by it. Thank you for the incredible, supernatural, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we thank God for his word and decisions this morning? Amen. If you made a decision to accept Christ this morning, please let us know about that there on your connection card. You can check that box that says, I accepted Christ. Give us your contact information. We've got a free book we'd like to send you in the mail, help you in your uh, journey and walk with Christ. If you're a first-time guest, thank you so much for being our guest. We're thrilled to have you with us this morning as we worship, we study God's Word together. Uh, Hopefully you fill out your connection card, drop that in the offering bucket as we receive our gifts in just a a moment. Thank you guys uh, for being here. You guys enjoying our summer greatest hit series so far? We got some other great ones got some other really good ones coming so be excited about those let's stand as we close in a song of worship and worship through our giving god bless you guys for being here